e hara taku toa i te toa takitahi, engari he toa takitini. My success is not mine alone, but that of a collective. Enga iwi o te motu, kia koutou e whakarongo mai ana, nau mai anō ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahika. Ko Justine Murray ahau, I'm Justine Murray. And I'm Maraia Rakuraku, this is Te Ahika, we're on Radio New Zealand National, and what's in today's show? Members of Te Whanua Apanui talk about how far they'll go to prevent the exploration of oil within their tribal domain. We do see this as a long-term campaign, not just in regards to Petrobras, but in regards to protecting our environment, um, whatever face the um, the people are wearing that want to come in and exploit our resources uh, without regard for the environment. So this is a long-term campaign. Uh, we have drafted the documentation to take this to the United Nations. We will be doing that very shortly. Um, we will continue pushing this into the New Zealand um, media arena as an environmental issue. She may be an opera singer now, but she started out in Kapahaka, which has served Maria Kapa well. We've all grown up doing the concerts and things like that, so that's always a good foundation. And my father's um, very musical. He plays all sorts of instruments, as our, as our, as our parents do. And uh, he's a wonderful singer as well, and also his mother, my grandmother. So we took up, um, we, we took up singing and playing instruments and all that, all that sort of things. Graphic novels, comics, can bring history to life for younger readers. It's not all about superheroes and villains, y'all. And that's exactly what's happened to a story of heroism in the war. Nothing surprising there, but this one is written in Te Reo Māori. Most, if not all, the information that's in Māori Mute Tohutoa has um, come from reading the Natomatoa book, uh, Sea Company, C Company by, Dr. by Monty Suta. Dr. Monty Suta, as well as um, Arapeta, a, a soldier story. More about the award-winning graphic novel Ngaremu Te Tohu Toa when Mariah talks with Fanonga and hardcase fella Kawata Tepa. That's coming up in this week's edition of Te Ahika. You're listening to Te Ahika, Radio National. Ko te mea tuatahi. Usually, there's only one thing that can pull Māori from all over the country together under short notice. Tangi. Okay, two things. That and a hui about an extremely serious kaupapa or issue. We saw it in 1995 with the fiscal envelope hui at Hirangi and Turangi, the hikoi to Parliament in 2004 about the proposed foreshore and seabed legislation, and further back in the last century with the establishment of the Kingitanga movement and various Māori parliaments. So, when in June the Kohana Reo Trust called a hui for all Kohana Reo and Te Reo Māori supporters to gather in Wellington to discuss the submission of a Waitangi Tribunal claim, people came. The sight of kaumatua, babies and mothers pushing prams in very cold weather on their walk from Parliament to the Waitangi Tribunal convinced one of the organisers, Tina Olsen-Ratana, that they were doing the right thing. I'm Tina Olsen-Ratana, I'm from uh, Ngāti Parau, uh, Tolaga Bay, Tukumari Bay, and I'm the co-chair of the Koangareo National Trust Board. Last week there was an urgent hearing 
at the Waitangi Tribunal about Y2336. That's the claim that has been submitted on behalf of the Kohanga Reo. Could you explain what that's about? Sure. The, um, the tribunal hearing last the week, we were requested by the tribunal to come and talk to our application for urgency that we had put in two weeks ago now. And so they asked, they, they realised that it was quite a substantive application and so they asked us to come and talk to it. So that's what, that's what the hearing was about last week. And so we had to go through, um, because, we're putting in an, because we're putting in an application for urgency, we had to go and convince, if you like, the tribunal the need for why our um, application should be considered for urgency because there's a lot, they've got, they're a very busy um, group. They have a lot of claims that are yet to be heard and everybody's saying their claim is urgent. So when we're asking for an application for urgency, we're asking to be brought to the front of the row. And, uh, we, and so because of that, on that basis, we... They ask for more information. Could you summarise what the claim is actually about? Well, the meat of this application for urgency is because for some time, particularly the last 20 years, uh, the policies and regulations of government and early childcare have begun to um, consume, um, overtake the very essence of kohanga reo and has begun to discriminate. In those policies and regulations, they discriminate against the, the kaupapa kohanga reo and goes against what kohanga reo was originally designed to be. And kohanga reo was originally um, designed in 1982 by the kaumātou and who who were concerned about our language, te reo Māori dai, and so, as a result of that, came the came the the whole idea of kohanga reo was to revitalise the reo by virtue of our babies, from zero to five, where whānau learn, parents learn, alongside of those children and are involved in that learning. Um, and so that's the basis basis of kohanga reo. It was never ever designed for or about early childcare. And so our claim, our application for urgency, what finally broke the camel's back was the ECE task force report that was released by the minute by uh, Anne Tolly. Uh, it was an independent task force report, so-called independent task force report. And uh, and what's being proposed in the, what's being talked about in the EC Task Force report is discriminates against kohanga reo. And at no time was the kohanga reo or the trust consulted about that report. And so there are factual inaccuracies contained within that report. But the report has been publicly released. And so uh, that's why we finally went to the tribunal. The hearing was held over a period of two days, and at the end of the two days, the tribunal made some recommendations. Yes, they did. They've um, 
they've required that the uh, Crown submit additional information. And by the Crown, are you meaning the Ministry of Education? Yes, the Ministry of Education in particular. Um, so they've required that they submit the information to back to the tribunal by Friday the 26th of August, and we will have an opportunity to, to consider what's being submitted, and we have to get that back to the tribunal by Friday the 2nd of September. Of September. The tribunal has also requested that we undertake mediation, and I mean by we is the Kuangareo National Trust, Ministry of Education, and Tupuni Kōkere to look at a way forward. To look, to look at a way of resolving? A look at a way of resolving the um, issues that Kohanga has. And that's due back to the tri A report on that is due back to the tribunal on the 16th of September. And a mediator needs to be selected by the 31st of August. Yes, that's true. Yes, a mediator of, uh, who has to be either a retired judge or a member of parliament is what's been recommended by the tribunal. So what? watch the space. Watch the space. Who knows where we'll go. But the trust is, the trust is entering into that optimistically. We're prepared. Uh, we're happy to be given the opportunity to sit in see if we can find a way forward. And, and so we're entering into that with an open mind. Kia ora, tēnā ausandātana nō Ngāti We'll be following the progress of this take over the months to come in Te Ahikā. Maria Kappa loves everything about performance, whether it's kapahaka, encouraging her music students, or singing an aria from an opera. So, it's no surprise this member of Ngāti Pikiao, Tūwharetua and Whakatohia, is a well-known face on the Rotorua entertainment circuit. When you learn her whānau name is Mitai, well, you know you're dealing with kapahaka royalty. There's her saxophonist father, Mina, entertaining tourists when they visit their whānau business, Mitai Village, on the outskirts of Rotorua. There are her brothers, Tehau and Wetini. Wetini is the Kaitātaki Tāne male leader for top kapahaka group Te Matarai Iorehu, the current holders of Te Matatini. So really it seems inevitable that Maria would develop the musicianship that is so obviously part of her whakapapa. I've um, grown up in Rotorua and we've, we've all grown up doing the concerts and things like that so that's always a good foundation and my father's um, very musical, he plays all sorts of instruments as our, as our, as our parents do and uh, he's a wonderful singer as well and also his mother, my grandmother. So we took up, um, we, we took up singing and playing instruments and all that, all that sort of thing so I've got a contemporary background in music but I, I'm, I'm a trained school teacher and I returned back to university probably about um, five five years ago to do a music degree because I wanted to specialise in music teaching and um, so I completed a music degree and I completed some classical singing studies there so I'm now um, quite versatile as a classical singer and also a contemporary singer and um, I won the New Zealand uh, Regional Awards for the New Zealand ARIA um, in 2009, so I've done some... Two years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've done 
uh, quite well in that in that area as well. And um, we grew up singing with um, lovely singers who who, who all sang high, uh, Leeratana, um, Bondi, um, yeah, some of our our. Uh, the older women all sang high like that. So to go back to university and do a classical singing um, uh, singing course was quite natural because we sang like that when we did concerts when we were younger. It's changed now. A lot of the young ones, uh, it's more kind of um, they sing more in their chest register or their um, spe speaking voice. A lot of the, really? the shows. Yeah, they don't. They don't tend to sing up like like a lot of opera singers. Because like one did in the past. singer that yeah. Nortiaro that I can think of, and this is just through Kapahaka's Atarita Maxwell. Oh yes, yes, and Atarita. We we kind of grew up um, watching them and um, copying them. So all of those beautiful singers, and yes, there are there are quite a few, all, all around the motu, not just Tiaroa, mm -hmm. but um, our people are very good at at um, I think at, at picking up different styles. And, and doing them well. Yeah. So what did the award that you won in 2009, what, what did that allow you to do? Did it, did, what, what came with that award? Um, it, it just gave me a profile for a start. Um, I've been invited to sing at quite a few functions, functions as a classical singer. And um, for me, that's, that's a real honour, uh, especially taking it up as an older person, uh, taking up singing, uh, that style of singing as an older person. It's, it's, it's a form of achievement for me. And um, so that, that has been good to go from kind of obscurity and, and then having a profile and being invited to sing at different things. Yeah. Um, how many siblings do you have, Maria? Uh, there, are, there are ten of us actually, and uh, two, of, two of our, 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 one, our brother, two of us are, are whangai. We've got a lovely whangai. Adopted. Adopted, yeah. Form of adoption. A form of adoption, yeah. yeah. And then, um, but one of my younger brothers, um, he passed away, our whangai. Um, uh, but... So yeah, so there are nine of us um, remaining, and it's it's a big family. Yeah. So just with, I mean, you're just using Wethini as an example because he has, uh, he is the tutor and male leader of the group uh, Te Matarai Iori, who performing, does performing and uh, singing, run through the whanau? Oh yeah. From yeah. your dad. Yeah, from dad, uh, indefinitely, um, and it's something that we're quite um, passionate about as well. And um, and I hear our, our mitai whānau at Whakatohe are very similar. They, they're very um, uh, musical as well. And, and then I'll say a lot of our whānau are, yeah, so um, around the motu. Uh, but, um, yeah, so we're quite passionate about music. Is there a particular style that you lean towards more though so than others? You talked about contemporary and opera. I love the challenge of opera, although I sing contemporary really quite well. Um, Probably, yeah, um, a particular style, I suppose, R&B. I mean, I grew up, grew up really enjoying um, Rene Geyer and, and those sorts of people, so I, I really enjoy kind of that style of music. Do you follow what, um, what, some, uh, what New Zealand opera singers are doing? I know that there's uh, quite a few high-profile who are travelling. Oh, there's a young boy... Um, Kawiti. Oh, Kawiti, yeah. Waitford. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. No, he's lovely. I, um, Young boy. I, I, I'm probably not as... Um, in that yeah, in that, in that kind of um, frame of mind at the moment. Um, Kawiti is a lovely, lovely young singer. Um, I was supposed to sing with um, him and a few other people at um, Opera in the Par uh, just 
Oh, I don't know if it was this year or last year. Yeah, which yeah. is a yeah. Is it a biannual event in, in yeah, uh, Yes, yeah. In Bi- yeah, and it's it's really they um, they get some really lovely lovely singers too. So it and was that's when you sing opera on the marae, isn't it? Yes, opera on the marae. Um, but so I no, but I didn't uh, sing with Kawati, but I sang with him in 2009 at the Aria finals I had, and that was lovely singing with the um, Auckland Philharmonic Orchestra. That was lovely. Yeah. Do you admire what Kiri Te Kanawa has done? I I very much admire what she has achieved after putting myself into the ring of of trying to to challenge myself to to sing opera. I'm very very impressed with what she has achieved because it's not an easy thing to 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 master, and then go on to worldwide fame and recognition the way she has. I'm I'm actually really quite proud of her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, do you have children? Chief, yes, we actually have two. We still have little children. We have a little, little three and a half year oh. old and a seven year old, um, Tomawa Fangai. So we're very blessed to have our babies, and they're absolutely beautiful. Mm. Uh, Atafai is seven, and Hannah Raukura is three and a half. Do, so I follow, question. do you follow Kapahaka um, and Matatini and performances? And you t- I mean, what you talked about earlier was interesting about how. You've seen um, performers project their singing through their chest. Can oh, you tell yeah, me more about that? More about that. Um, I think uh, what I'm trying to say is a lot of people don't, oh, a lot of our young people 
they tend to emulate a lot of the singers that are around that are their favourite at the moment, like Adele and um, oh, Adele. yeah, Adele's lovely. And then there's um, oh, but what I'm basically trying to say is they tend to love singing uh, the kind of music that the contemporary music that they're hearing. So and and not many kind of sing up in the top part of their vocal range. Um, well, no, they, they don't. Yeah, not many that I know of, and I might be a little bit naive about that. What are the ranges? There's, uh, there's, there's, alto. there's um, yeah, there's alto, there's soprano, then there's, of course, for the men, there's a bass and the tenor. Um, some singers use the top part of their vocal range, uh, and then others tend to. I suppose what I'm trying to say is they they tend to sing a lot like the singers that they emulate, which is mainly in their chest range or their speaking voice range. Because <clears throat> you teach music now, don't you? Yes, yes, yeah, I teach it. people to sing. Um, you know, I just do. I've just started doing a little bit of singing teaching at Girls High, and um, and also to do at Girls High, and also I teach um, I teach people to to read and write music using a fabulous method called Kadai. 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 It's it's a Hungarian name. Um, it's after the Zoltan Kadai is a famous composer. But anyway, it's fabulous for our people because it's experiential and it uses the, uses the ear. Uh, you, you use your voice and your ear to learn to read and write music. So, wow. um, and it is, it's, it's a very, it's an accelerated, accelerated method for learning to read and write music. So I love passing it on to, to other people. And, so you would um, normally have a piano? Or no, oh, we, we do use a piano. What this teaches people to do basically is to look at music and be able to hear it in their heads without, um, without actually playing an instrument. And this is where I'm uh, saying it's, it's, it's about using your ear and your voice. Um, and yeah, it, it's using, yeah, just using your, your first instrument, which is your body and your voice, your vocal folds. Um, it, that's another story, actually. But anyway, it is fabulous. I work with very young children and adults. And then, um, yeah, and even teenagers. Do you have so, to be brutally honest when you're teaching people to sing about, oh, no, flat? Um, <laughs> you ask really good questions. Um, How sensitive do you have to be? I, uh, just working with people like I'll, um, um, some of the young girls I've been working with, they have lovely, lovely voices, but they're not, um, they're not releasing, they're not kind of uh, having a loose jaw, so they're, they're singing with a with a tight, tense jaw, mm. and they're trapping the sound. And all I'll say to them is, you know, just keep it nice and loose, and you'll release that beautiful sound that you're making a lot more. So, and it can cause pitch problems, and it also can yeah, that sort of thing. And so the the um, and and when you do that sort of thing, they they can hear the difference. They can hear, you know, a vowel that's being um, sung fully. And one that's been kind of trapped in their mouth. It traps the sound and it, it traps the ear. So, do you watch movies? Oh, movies. Do you watch programs like, you know, American Idol and? Ah, uh, yeah. I, I watch. I watch programs. Yeah, every now and again I do. Not not particularly fully, mm. but um, but I'm I I love to get uh, involved with with shows myself and to also keep my own composing going. And um, so we we did Cats. Like I said, I oh, think yeah. it was yeah, just. This year, and then um, cats the production. Yeah, it's just it's a local production, but it's fabulous. We have very talented people in Rotorua, so in the next show that I'm wanting to be involved in is the Little Shop of Horrors, which is cool. So I get cool. to sing one of the. Have you seen it? I've seen. Yep, the old school oh, movie, Little so Shop of Horrors. Cool. Yeah, so I get to sing one of the black girl parts on one of the older, one of the higher parts. 
Kia ora, Maria Kappa no Ngatipikiao me tu hoina. Next week, we're back with the rest of the Fano at Mitai Village. We've also posted up some pics of Maria, so if you'd like to check them out, head to radioNZ.co.nz forward slash teahika. And you can always email us at teahika at radioNZ.co.nz. And we're on Facebook as well. I'm Maria Rakaraku. And I'm Justine Murray, and this is Teahika. Mai i taumata o Apanui ki Pōtaka. From te taumata o Apanui te Pōtaka. Ko Whanokau te maunga. Whanokau is the mountain. Ko Mōtu te awa. Mōtu is the river. Ko Whakari te puia. Whakari is the volcano. Ko Apanui te tangata. Apanui is the ancestor. Ko te whanau a Apanui te iwi. Te whanau a Apanui is the tribe. What we've just said describes the geographical features of the iwi te whanau a Apanui. Which is how all iwi identify themselves. Tainui, ko Waikato te awa, Waikato's the river. Ngāti Ranginui, ko Tauranga te moana, Tauranga is the sea. Ngāti Parau, ko Hikurangi te maunga, of course, Hikurangi maunga. And ko Waiapu te awa, Waiapu is the river. Those are just some examples. If the way you're identified is threatened, you do everything within your power to prevent that. Which is how Te Whanua Apanui Iwi have responded to the exploration of oil kilometres from the their coastline by Brazilian oil company Petrobras. We chose that date, the 20th of April, because that was the first anniversary of the spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And so there was a lot of media at that time uh, about it being the first anniversary of the Gulf uh, spill and the environmental effects a year on and those sorts of things. And a um, leading government scientist came out um, at that point and talked about uh, what was still going on in the Gulf, because he had been there, I understand, uh, to observe the effects of that, uh, and then spoke really about the really, really dangerous potential uh, in the Raukumara Basin, given that it is what they call tectonically unstable. There's earthquakes in that basin all the time, uh, and that it's extremely deep because they're proposing to drill uh, three times, either two or three times the depth uh, of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so he came out saying that he thought that was extremely risky. Uh, in uh, the investigation that followed the Gulf of Mexico spill, uh, they talked about the depth that they were drilling in the Deepwater Horizon rig as being, and that's about a third of the depth of the uh, key places inside the Raukumara Basin. Uh, the scientists refer to that as deep space because they simply don't know what's going on there. And if any accident like, uh, like the Gulf of Mexico happens, it's virtually impossible to contain. Uh, and so they refer to that depth as deep space. And what they're talking about in the Raukumara Basin is two or three times that depth. It's at the absolute limits or probably... Um, so it's unknown. That's right. And certainly in relation to what... Uh, the scientists are saying it's not only at the absolute limits of the capacity of the oil industry to drill at that depth, but some of them are saying it's beyond their capacity and that it's too dangerous. And if there is a spill, what the government scientists have told us, this is the New Zealand government scientists that work for Ministry of Economic Development, have told us is that it will be virtually impossible to contain anything if there's a spill at that depth. And so... 
we just don't understand why the government would take this absolutely crazy risk. Uh, what we're getting back is that it's about the dollar uh, and it's about putting everything this country holds dear in relation to the environmental integrity of our coast at risk for short-term economic gain. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's got no long-term sustainability built into it at all uh, and they're effectively just prostituting our oceans for a small, very, very, very small return uh, in exchange for extremely high risk. If there is a spill like there was in the Gulf of Mexico in the Raukumara, it will cover the coastline of the North Island, of the entire North Island. Uh, those are the map projections that have been done. If a spill of that size happens in New Zealand, it will affect all of our waterways, all of our coastal marine life, uh, including our bird life, including our marine mammals, uh, including the green, clean green New Zealand image that they promote in terms of ecotourism. They talk about economic growth, but they are risking our tourism industries, our fishing industries, our agriculture. Uh, and basically all of our coastal-based communities. So the economic gain uh, is ridiculous as an argument. Whānau Apunui is a Ngāti Pro iwi. They understand this. Yes. And the Prime Minister's response uh, to some of our concerns was to say that he thought we were jumping the gun on some of those things uh, and that we, uh, we may have been ill-informed uh, and we told him in response to that, that we in fact had got most of that information from his scientists, from his Ministry of Economic Development uh, and from his Ministry for the Environment. So these are well-founded arguments. Uh, they, you know, we get, uh, we get the criticism that this is scaremongering, this is not based on good information. And I, I think they, they talked about emotion a, a without rationale um, underpinning it. And in fact, it's completely the opposite. It's the information that has angered the, the tribes on the East Coast because we can see the information, we can read it, we can access it on the internet, we can discuss it amongst us. It's actually the information that has empowered the position of the iwi because every piece of information we get uh, basically supports our position that this is too dangerous to allow to occur. Um, and the scientists, um, Jim Henson, who's a leading scientist um, in terms of climate change throughout the world, um, it came over to the Festival for the Planet um, up in Auckland and, and talked about how uh, this basically searching for the last drop of oil for uh, a meagre uh, portion of, of the dollar is just completely criminal. And he, he talked about it as being complete reckless disregard for the environment and for uh, the people that sustain themselves off it. So we see this on the East Coast as a matter of our tribal survival that is being put at risk by this government because we will not be able to live on our tribal homelands in our tribal territory that we've lived in for over 20 generations. We will not be able to live there and sustain ourselves off our land anymore if there's a spill like the Gulf of Mexico. Whānau Apunui and Ngāti Pro will quite simply not exist the way that we do now. We will have to move. Uh, and we'll have to move and be the guests of other people inside their tribal lands um, if there is a spill. And if there's not a spill, 
And people talk um, about, you know, the Gulf of Mexico being, you know, one in uh, 3,500 rigs um, that operate uh, in that vicinity, and that was just one of them that's built. One, we look at the probability of risk, um, given the depth that they're proposing, and given the science that they've got sitting behind uh, the oil industry at the moment, which is moving so fast, uh, the developments in the oil industry compared to the science to keep it safe. Uh, we look at those things uh, and say, well, there is an extremely high risk, um, and not only that, uh, the potential effects of that risk eventuates um, are disastrous for us, but we know too that even if there is no spill, if there's a functioning oil rig on a good day in, in the Rokumura Basin, that will change forever the coastal marine area uh, in our region. It will affect the sonar, in terms of the noise underneath the water. These are massive installations that are put, in, put into the ground uh, and basically um, lodged into, into the core of the earth. Uh, it will affect the sonar forever, which for us affects the marine mammals and the marine life, all of the species there that depend on sonar to find their way to their natural habitats like kina, like coda, uh, uh, like the marine mammal migratory paths, that's, the paths that pass through there. Um, and also all of the chemicals that are used in oil exploration. They say in terms of uh, extraction that 35,000 chemicals are used when they put down an exploratory rig, um, and those are known to be toxic to mankind. 35,000 chemicals of a toxic nature. So those will not only be toxic to mankind, they will be toxic to the fish life uh, down there. Um, and so we're really, really worried about, even if there is no spill, um, that just the installation of an oil rig will forever change our lives. So these are all things that could happen, right? Mm -hmm. Now, at the moment, all they're doing is surveying. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the surveying is the first step, uh, then there's an, a further step of surveying and um, so at the moment they're doing what they talk, call 2D seismic um, surveying um, and then they will go away and analyse the information, they'll come back and do 3D seismic surveying and then go away and analyse that and if they think there's the potential for oil they will propose where they will put an exploratory rig within 60 months of the granting of the permit on the 1st of June last year. So we're talking five years here, eh? Potentially, although it could happen a lot faster. Um, that's the outside limit of the permit, and that's the point at which the permit expires and they'll need to be granted a new one. Um, certainly if they um, don't do it within that time period, uh, we will be putting pressure on for there not to be a new permit or a renewed permit granted. But given uh, the position of this government at the moment, uh, we think they probably will grant another permit if this one expires. Uh, but the seismic surveying itself is not without risk. And Let's just summarise. Petrobras have a permit that can go, a permit for five years. And what are some of the strategies that you're working now? Does it iwi? Because, of course, Whānau Apanui isn't just based, like all our iwi, we're based all around the motu, mm -hmm. all around the world. Yeah. Um, certainly, and we do see this as a long-term campaign, not just in regards to Petrobras, but in regards to protecting our environment. Um, 
whatever face the um, the people are wearing that want to come in and exploit our resources uh, without regard for the environment. So this is a long-term campaign. Uh, we have drafted the documentation to take this to the United Nations. We will be doing that very shortly. Um, we will continue pushing this into the New Zealand um, media arena as an environmental issue. Um, we, we have got some benefit concerts coming up in terms of the uh, campaign uh, and those are just basically to raise public awareness about this and, that, and we will continue pushing for political change in terms of the decision making so we'll uh, try as best as we can to push for law reform around environmental regulation those sorts of things you need to try and do within the system but we will be looking to put external pressure on, we will try and hit Petrobras as a company in terms of its brand by saying we don't want them here. We've approached uh, the Brazilian Embassy in Wellington. We have spoken with Petrobras officials directly. We will continue doing that with Brazil's new newly elected president, uh, who herself was a human rights and indigenous rights activist in her day. Uh, and so we will put some pressure on them in terms of uh, Brazil itself upholding the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People that they signed. We hope we send a message uh, to the rest of the petroleum industry not to come to the Rokumara Basin and not to undertake deep-sea oil drilling in this country. Kia ora, Dale Takitimu no te whanua apanui, and yes, we have photos. What usually takes a three-hour drive from Whakatane turned more into a, a four-hour drive as Mariah was in and out of the car, snapping on her way to Te Kaha. And they're all at our website, radioinz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Today, many Māori babies carry the names of reality television shows, actors, or celebrities. So, know any snookies? I don't know. I don't know any snookies, Mariah, but I know, I know about four Taylors after maybe Taylor Swift. Look, we're going to be getting lots of Justins after Justin Bieber's. Yep. What about, okay, comics, comic books, and characters? I know two Xavier's. Named after. From the X-Men. From the X-Men. I know One Storm and Phoenix. I know a Conan after Conan the Barbarian. And get this, a Mad Max. So what about back in our in our parents' day, back in their era? It was comic characters like Nyoka from Nyoka the Jungle Girl. I don't remember Nyoka. So my dad was telling me one time about how my auntie got her name. And he just said, oh, um, I said to him something like, oh, dad, auntie Nyoka wants, wants a drink. And he goes, Nyoka, do you know how she got her name? And I went, no. And he goes, she's named after Nyoka the Jungle Girl, which was a serial that was published in a newspaper, and they used to read it in Waimana. Nyoka the Jungle Girl. Nyoka the Jungle Girl. (laughs) And often was the only source of entertainment for rural Māori communities in the 1940s and 1950s. And it's this era that is revisited in the form of an award-winning graphic novel retelling through illustrations a Māori battalion soldier's time at war. One of the nation's most famous, Te Moana Nui Akiwa Narimu. Huia publishers Kawata Tepa lead the team. Uh, my role at um, Huya Publishers is a resource developer and and that's what we do. We take the project 
and from its infancy and we follow it along helping it grow until it matures to this fine piece of work we see before us. Most if not all the information that's in Ngāri Mute Tohu Toa has um, come from reading the Ngātomatoa book, Sea uh, Company, by, Company Dr. by Dr. Monsi Suta, as well as um, Arapeta, a, a soldier story um, that was published by Huia and also edited by his um, Mokopuna. Which is the story about Arapeta Awatere. Awatere, who was a colonel in the 28th Māori Battalion. Uh, that's right. And he's actually mentioned in the book. This story is actually about how Moananuiaki Wanarimu became the first Māori Victoria Cross holder. Yep, that's correct. And how he received that honour after dying in battle in Tunisia in and, 1943. Yep. And he received it posthumously. And this book just basically outlays that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, it, it follows him um, from a time where... He's already in the war. One of the risks was not to get too much of the story into the book. Uh, the book is only 40 pages, and within that 40 pages, you can take four pages away from that being the cover, back cover, inside uh, imprint. So you've got 36 pages to work with. Now, in that 36 pages, um, you can't uh, squash a whole lot of stuff into that 36 pages. So what we had to do is we kind of culled it, culled our storyboard, and um, lo and behold, we ended up with, um, not knowingly, uh, uh, we ended up with these last thirty-six to uh, 24 to 36 hours of his life. So is that just a process that you went through? You started off this big? You have to yes, meet um, certain criteria, which is part of a graphic novel and... A book of this kind. We started off like I think in this book that's uh, before us, there uh, should be at least 190 to 192 frames in the book. Now we started off with 422 frames. So how do you make that decision? How do you choose what what stays and um, goes? Come with the... I think with uh, Andrew and I being boys, it just <laughs> kind of fell that way. We we always wanted. To grab the target audience, we need to grab all the flashy stuff. In this case, was all the, um, um, like all the action. All so the basically, action. you've written this for your sixteen-year-old self. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, for actually for myself now. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I've been an avid reader and lover of comics since I was since I, since I learned how to read English. So um, this was um, this was an awesome project for me. Um, uh, you've always seen all the commando comics, old school, the old Conan sagas and chronicles. And then, lo and behold, Marvel and DC came out with coloured comics and Mad, Judge Dredd and all that. Um, you know, grew up with all that stuff. And to make one about a Māori hero, you know, it's um, it's one of those footsteps in life that you never ever forget. Um, and you will never ever forget. And... Um, one thing that has come out of doing this book for Andrew and I is um, we were just being little kids, little boys, locked up in a room. Here's your idea. Do it. Do it well. And we thought we'd done it well, but now it's receiving awards and it's getting recognised um, nationwide and stuff like that. Um, just a few of my family members thought that it was commercial and went into Dimmicks and had and a look at McLeod's and ordering it from Woodcalls and... 
early to early for me to tell them that it's um, educational. <laughs> it's written in Te Reo Māori. Yep. Andrew's Pākehā. Yep. How? What sort of process did you have to go through to to get it to the stage, Kawata? Did you write the story in English and then he had to draw the pictures to um, fit most, the... Yeah, most of the storyboarding was done um, by taking certain information out of the Ngātamatoa books. So those were our main sources of information. Uh, the Ngātamatoa Sea Company book... Um, and also reading some of the manuscripts from the New Zealand war history, um, just to for you know just for research and maybe there's something they they missed within the book and um but and then from those sources you crafted the story crafted the story um we crafted it uh, yeah for our target audience which were um young uh, young boys at, in high school and young boys who don't like to read much. So I'm just wondering at the whole process that was used when it came to using Te Reo Māori, because there are some very specific things within here that, as a Māori speaker, that you would be able to relate to. How is it that Andrew, as the artist, artist has been able to capture that? How did you communicate um, that to him? The, personally, for myself, because most of the Māori stuff in here I've lived through, and it's trying to... Um, to portray that to Andrew, who who was none the wiser, uh, I spoke to him about things like um, uh, Tanifa, how guardians and the way we see Tanifa within the, the actual graphic novel. There's signs of Rehu or Matakite, explaining that to Andrew. Um, the good thing about Andrew, I, I think, is he's he's got an open mind. He's been in an illustrator for so long that some of those concepts I was talking about, he's he already come, yeah, them. he understands right. and he's come across them, but not fully understanding it at that time. So it wasn't until I spoke to him and gave him a bit more information and then he started asking questions, then he got a, a, a better um, grasp, a better grasp on, on things Māori and, um, yeah, short of marrying him off to... Uh, <laughs> One of the whanaunga <laughs> and educating him that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just had to... Um, uh, but he's an awesome guy. Um, even he said this was his dream job um, to do a war comic or a war graphic novel, and, and now he's done two. Uh, there's the John Pohe one, uh, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, uh, and then there's this one, Narimu Te Tohutua. So he's done um, Navy and, Air Force, uh, and Army. So just remind us who John Pohe was. Uh, John Pohe was a Royal New Zealand Air Force uh, pilot, um, in the First World War. In the First World War, um, yeah, Māori, First Māori, and he died in the Great Escape. Being the resource developer and developing this um, project and this resource, um, the biggest thing for me was um, I was hoping that these Kurua, uh, Kaumatua from Nazi Pro wouldn't mind uh, the story of their main hero being written by a young fella from Tūhoi. Mm. Um, that was my main, um, um, what do you say? Like fear? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, concern, well, yeah, 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 concern, yeah, concern. You know, that, was, that was my main concern for, for doing this project. Um, personally, I had to do a really good job for myself as well as for the Bwananui Akiwanarimu to, to tell a story in a way where um, young Māori can relate to... Um, to the things that 
these people done. Because even though it's only about Narimu, it's about his whole platoon, it's about his whole battalion. And within the book, I, when people read it, I hope they get the sense of um, unity that um, these people, uh, these men had within themselves as a uh, platoon, as a battalion. Um, and Māori being Māori, uh, you couldn't help but throw in a lot of the hard case things that were... Um, that we had read of uh, within our research. And, um, so tell me some of the high case things. Um, well, if you turn to page... This, uh, if you turn to page 28, 29 on that spread, um, it says, Hikurani, uh, 27th of March, 1943, uh, 0, 100 hours in the morning. Um, Narimu is locked in battle with the Germans and they are quickly running out of grenades. Narimu then has the idea of telling his men to pick up rocks the size of grenades. Uh, so it's pitch black and all they hear and um, tells them to throw them at the Germans. And because they're the same size and they hear the plonk, all the Germans turn around and run away and then the Māori are there left laughing at them because they ran away from rocks. It's just small stuff like that. So it's just that humour thing, eh? Yeah, it's just that humour thing and, and it's got... Ekwe anna! <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Um, and within the book too, there's uh, snippets of um, German in there. Um, hand granate. Hand, uh, hand granate and there's one in there where we wanted them to fire the mortars. Uh, we got the correct ones in there now, but I think originally we had um, the other mortar, the um, Brick Lane mortar, so <laughs> it was quite funny. <laughs> so hand granate is hand, hand grenade. grenade yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you find your knowledge of the war in this battle, did you find it increased? Oh, by far. Um, like, what happened is when we did get a copy of the Natamato Asi Company book, yeah, it's it's quite thick, and then on first glance I thought, oh, hell, that's a thick book. So I thought I'd just jump in straight away and go straight to the Narimi section. But in reading that, you always, it always, the first Refused page of each section, else. it always took you back a section. So you had to read that section, which took you back. So I started reading it from the start to the finish, and then I found out that it was not so thick. Um, but all the information and, and everything in there, oh, it's awesome. It's a 40-page book, 190-something frames. Yep. How long does something like this take to pull together? Um, or at least at least a year, safely, at least a year. There's a lot of work that goes into it. The easy work is all the research and the um, the illustrations and getting the roughs in and then um, making sure that those are set at a time where there will, will be no more changes to that, so they become finals. So getting them from roughs to the final stages. And the rest is getting the designer in to put all the flash stuff on, like the title, the page, the texture of the um, cover, the thickness of the paper and stuff like that, and whether it's gloss and um, how things sit. Um, so these are all conscious choices that you you make when you're putting this together. Oh, the right? designer does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as soon as it goes to the designer, they all they do all the oh, uh, we'll lift that up. Or he he adds in the 
the narrative and the labels, um, the words, the thought bubbles, the speech bubbles, the um, the sound effects, heads and all of those. Yeah. So, Kawata, if you're um, working with a designer who's who doesn't have te or Māori, how would they know where to put these, put the bubbles? Yes, that was interesting. Um, it was actually drawing the bubbles on the actual pictures. Right. Yeah. So you would do that. Yeah, you yeah. would draw the bubbles like, and um, say this is where that goes. Yep, draw the bubbles, like say for... Like on the first page, two and three, you see just uh, by the middle of the page, you see a guy, he'd become man one. And say so man one, speech bubble says, kia kaha, kia u. And then the next guy, a man two, ake ake kia kaha, and, and so on. You know, so you're, you're drawing on your actual picture and saying man one, man two, just so he knows. Gosh, so for you... You're actually you're very involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the start <laughs> to the, the finish, whole, in the whole thing, and the whole thing, especially when it's in Te Reo Māori. Yep. Obviously, Huia is making a conscious decision to put historical accounts into graphic novel form. Yep, that's correct, and and it's showing now Ranatahi now Tamariki Mukopuna in modern days. You know, the what what our Tipuna done. You know, like the. He's a tipuna of Dewi Māori, I'd say, Ngārimu, even though he hails from uh, Ngāti Pro and Te Whānau Apanui. But, you know, koia, ko tātou katoa. And, and uh, one of the good things I like about the book is at the end, it talks about um, when his um, his mum and dad received uh, the Victoria Cross on his behalf. Because that was a huge... Yeah, Whakarua Park. Commemoration, uh, wasn't yeah. it? Ruatoria, 1946. And just even um, that spread, uh, the 36 to 37 page, all that, all those frames apart from uh, the Tipuna Krowa Apirana Nata, apart from him, all the rest were taken from um, photographs, video clips, mm. video clips that are that that are on the 28 Māori Battalion website. Oh, I am here to kia. Kia huia, nā rātou te, te, te honore i tūpuna mai ki au ki te mahi tēnei pukapuka. Uh, ka atu ki, ki, ki nā kraua tokorua rā, kia tāmati wiri, kia me, me tāna huarana tira whaia tili. Tai atoki kia api um, nā rātou uh, iu ai te reo. Uh, ki te reo Ngāti Purau, ā, ka tiki Ngāti te kōrero a Herewini Parata i kia, e, e kia ana ia. Ā, ka ati, uh, ko te reo te whānau apanui tonu tēnei, koina nā, nā, nā mihi. Ai, ka ritu atu i tēra. You can find out more about the graphic novel about Ngāri Mu, Te Tohu Toa, on our webpage radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahi Kā. A nei, kawa te tepa anō, me te whakamārama atu whakatauki i tēnei wiki. E harataku toa i te toa takitahi, e nari he toa takitini e. Um, my power is not from the one, but from the many. And I think for me personally, that this applies to my my um, uh, 
development of this graphic novel because it wasn't just me and the illustrator but we were all hands on deck as supposed to say so even our mana wasn't from just us two but it came from everyone else who had a hand in, in helping us produce um, this resource. Kia ora. Next week, Justine's touring Mitai Village and we profile recipients of the annual Creative New Zealand Nga Taumatoi A Te Wakatoi Awards. Nā rere teiwi, ko tai mai nai ki te mutunga a te ahikā. Nā mihi mahana ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, mai te whānau a te ahikā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora tātou katoa.